Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Hannah White. I'm De Deputy Director of the Institute for Government, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you all here today for this optimistically titled event, Fixing <laughs> Social Care. Um, as everyone in this room is well aware, um, the question of how to reform and fund adult social care is one which has been being asked for a long time and has been not being uh, answered by successive governments. Um, and over the past decade, as financial pressures on local authorities have increased, the question has become more pressing. But as Lord Warner was saying uh, outside, there seems to be a degree of sort of collective amnesia about the, some of the thinking that's gone on before uh, about, about this. Perhaps unsurprisingly, after the 2017 election, uh, the, some of the parties are being a little bit vague uh, in their proposals um, on, on adult social care in their manifestos. Um, or at least about how, in the long term, they would be able to fund um, uh, a cost of care cap. So we're here today to discuss what is being proposed, how feasible it might be, and what impact it would actually have in the long term. And I'm delighted that we've got a fantastic panel here to uh, address these important questions. Um, on my far left, uh, Lord Warner, um, Member of the House of Lords, former Minister of State for Health, and with a long experience of these questions. Sally Warren, who's Director of Policy at the King's Fund, Charles Tallock, Assistant Director at the Health Foundation, and Nick Davies, our very own Programme Director from the Institute for Government, who's uh, done a, a lot of work on public services more generally, also <coughs> thinking about the questions of um, how we might get to a political answer on, on um, social care. So the way we're going to run this is um, each of the panellists are going to make an opening statement of a few minutes and then I will pretty much, I think, open up straight to, to the floor for questions, so do be thinking about what you would like to ask. So can I begin by inviting Lord Warner to tell us what he thinks the problem is and what the manifestos tell us about how the, how, um, the different parties think they might address that problem. Thank you very much, Hannah. I'm not usually on the extreme left, but... Um, <laughs> I'll make the best of it. Um, I'm also not speaking for the Labour Party, which I left four years ago, for reasons which we needn't go into. Um, I want to just have a quick overview, a helicopter view of the problem. I think you can sum up the social care crisis in about 10 or 12 words. Shortage of money, shortage of people, and a set of nervous care providers who are very uncertain about their future. That's it in a nutshell. And all the uh, political attention has been given to money, but those other two areas are pretty important, particularly uh, the staffing issue, which is not going to be helped by Brexit. About 40% of the care staff in social care, adult social care in London come from overseas. So it's quite a big issue, that, the staffing issue as well. And you should never forget the impact of, on the NHS of failing to deal with social care. The IFS, Institute for Fiscal Studies, has suggested that adult social care needs a cash injection of £11 billion a year by 24-25 to meet rising costs of that care and to stop cuts in other services such as children's uh, social care. And we know currently, uh, the figures vary a bit, but we know currently that you need an injection of give or take five to six billion to make good the loss of revenue since 2010 relative to demand. The only near oven ready, if I may put it that way, solution is the deal not proposals which were produced in 2011 
and whose implementation is actually provided for in the 2014 CARE Act. Even this would need a sizable cash inje <coughs> injection to make good the financial deficit since 2010 that I'm, I've mentioned. I'm not saying that's the best solution, but if you want to take something off the shelf, that's as near as we get to something to be taken off the shelf. Let's go to the uh, manifestos. Uh, it doesn't take terribly long. Uh, the conservative solution is, surprise, surprise, a cross-party talks. Uh, the chances of that with their current leader succeeding, I should think, are extraordinarily low. Um, and they've offered an extra £1 billion a year starting in April and for the life of this parliament. It's somewhat ambiguous as to whether that means you keep getting an, another million e billion each year or the, whether it's the same billion that ca is carried on for five years. So you pay your money and you take your choice as to how you interpret that particular text. And then some really helpful proposals for doubling the dementia research funding and small amounts for community package, care packages. Labour proposes uh, the, basically the Brown solution, a national care service with free care starting with the elderly. But bizarrely, it also proposes that no one will pay more than 100,000 in catastrophic care costs, which seems to me to mean that they have in mind a means-tested system, um, because how would you get to find out whether they paid uh, 100? thousand uh, pounds on care. So that looks remarkably similar to some Corbynized version of Dillnot. Um, on top of that, they are proposing to double the carer's allowance and double the number of people receiving publicly funded care packages, whatever that means. It's not clear to me from reading their manifesto what they would do about the, the funding deficit accumulated since the 2010. The Lib Dems uh, um, proposals is equally ambiguous. It, they propose seven billion pounds a year increase for health and care, funded by 1P on the income tax. It's said to be earmarked to relieve crisis in social care, but it's under the heading of health and care, so it's not altogether clear how much of that money in the manifesto actually goes to social care. That's it in a nutshell. Uh, happy to answer some questions when we get to them. <laughs> so, Sally, what do you think the proposals in the manifestos really mean in terms of the sustainability of the current system? system. Yeah. So um, I will try and shed a bit of light on what uh, the manifestos and the costing documents behind the manifestos and various briefings given to the press but not publicly released uh, mean in terms of the overall uh, picture on sustainability of the current model. So the first place we need to start is obviously a recognition that the current model is delivered through local government. So when all the manifestos talk about more money for social care, the first difficulty is you don't know what it's on top of because it's not completely clear what the local government funding position is in all the manifestos. These are manifestos, these are not spending reviews with brilliant spreadsheets that we can really delve into. 
Um, our friends at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, though, have help, helpfully summarised broadly to say, if you believe the Conservatives' fiscal rules, austerity will continue for local government. So you will be starting and continuing with a very, very shaky foundation for local government. The Liberal Democrats' spending plans for local government as a whole would allow them to kind of reverse the cuts made since 2010 in local government spending power, but still assumes year-on-year um, -year increases in council tax. Um, the Labour Party spending proposals uh, reverse all of the cuts since 2010 and do not rely on council tax. So you will want to make your own individual choices about which of those spending plans you think are credible and viable. But we then, on top of the, that basic foundation for local government funding overall, we then look to see what have they said about social care specifically. The Conservatives, um, the £1 billion, uh, a few really important caveats here. It is the same billion pounds they announced in the spending round in September. It is therefore shared between children's and adult social care. It is for local government to determine based on their local priorities what the share should be. When they've been asked to share money before, it's broadly been split 50-50 between adults and children. So if we assume that continues, this is 500 million pounds for adult social care. It is only one billion you then get the same billion the next year, or the same 500 million the next year, and the next year, and the next year. So it doesn't grow with inflation or demand. It is therefore not adequate at all to uh, meet the current levels of access and quality whilst we uh, attempt to meet demographic change. So it's not a credible funding option. Um, if we go to the Liberal Democrats, uh, as Norman said, they've committed to one penny on income tax that will be shared between uh, health and social care. They have, if you look at some of the papers, uh, not in their costing document, but they do seem to have briefed out how they're going to split that. And there is a decent chunk of that going to social care, around about three billion a year by the end of the Parliament. So that is a, based on top of what they're proposing for local government as a whole. That does feel like a credible funding uh, offer that could keep the current system kind of limping on. It's not going to transform the current system. It's going to keep it uh, going. Uh, Labour um, have proposed, uh, in terms of their funding commitment, they've put together both the costings for their free personal care offer, the National Care Service offer, and the current model, and they say that will be broadly 10.8 billion pounds by 23-24. I should say those costs are based on King's Fund costs, so obviously I, I think that they're accurate. <laughs> um, uh, they are broadly split around about 6 billion for the new reform system and around about 4 billion for the existing system. So again, that feels like a decent slug of cash that can keep the current system going whilst we then introduce a new reform system. So we see quite big difference between the three parties in terms of how credible their basic funding option is uh, for social care. I think it's worth also saying a couple of areas where I think that none of the manifestos are particularly credible for the current model, uh, and Norman touched on, on one of those. So the workforce, we currently have 122,000 vacancies in our adult social care system. Uh, we have the vast majority of the workforce being paid at or near the national minimum wage. Uh, five out of six of the biggest supermarkets pay more than we pay our social care workers. Throughout the manifestos, there are smatterings of commitments. So there's let's have a new professional, well, a new regulator for care workers. Let's make sure workers are paid uh, travel time if they're working in domiciliary care. Um, those suffer partly from you not being clear how you can deliver that in a mixed market model uh, where you don't employ them in the, private in the public sector. So it's not clear that you could deliver it. 
But even if you could deliver those things, what I don't see in any of the manifestos is the same urgency and scale of attention being paid to the recruitment crisis in social care as is being paid to a similar crisis in the NHS. So where, where is the action to bring in 120,000 people into the sector and keep them in the sector over time? So I think that's a major gap, which means that the credibility of, uh, of all of the plans are a bit questionable. I then think there's a bit of an issue about the kind of type of services that are being talked about. So you, when you read the manifestos, you definitely get a sense of this is us throwing money, some of it not enough, some of it enough, to maintain a quite traditional model of services, which is about the public sector providing services that I've determined are right for you. There's not really any sense in the manifestos about imagining a different future for people who need social care, be they older people or working age adults. So not a strong narrative around independence, around quality, around personal control. And I think that's also a real um, omission from across all of the manifestos. That is a fantastic segue into the question I was going to ask Charles, which is about, um, Sally's told us about sort of what the manifestos might mean for sustainability of the current system, but what about expanding um, provision, changing quality, yep. those sorts of things? Okay. So I think when you look at the welfare state that we've got at the moment, it's pretty obvious that social care is a, a kind of missing part of it. Um, you know, it's a, it's a weird situation where basically anyone with income and assets is sort of on their own. You know, they're, they're facing massive <coughs> uncertainty. They don't really know how to manage that, but only when their, their assets and income gets depleted to such a level they can't look after themselves does the local authority set, step in. That's kind of weird, and that goes back to the whole history of, the, of, of social care and how it was founded in 1948, the National Assistance Act. And... Reflecting on what's happened since then, I think perhaps you can understand why it wasn't really part of the welfare state. So, for example, in 1948, um, if you're a woman, you had a one in four chance of dying before the age of 65. That's now less than one in 10. You had a life expectancy of 14 years. That's now 21 years. And increasingly, those years are spent actually not all in good health, but in ill health as well. So social care is, it's been growing in, in importance since 1948, and it's only going to get more important and sooner or later we're going to have to address this missing part of the welfare state. We are quite unusual in this respect so it, the OECD in 2017 did a report on social protection um, for, for social care in several countries. They had four different categories so at the top were those that provided a comprehensive NHS-like social care service. They were the Nordic countries unsurprisingly in the layer below that, there were countries like Japan, Germany, who provided kind of universal long-term care insurance, but social kind of insurance, where people would contribute perhaps through payroll. Um, the next level down, countries like Spain, Italy, France, were um, countries which had a mix of perhaps universal benefits and mean-tested benefits. And in the bottom, that was safety net countries, um, means-tested, were, there were two countries there, the UK and the US. Um, you know, Often when you find yourself in such a small group at the bottom, you think something has got to change here. Um, so why is this a missing part of the welfare state? Well, probably a lot of you in this room have heard Andrew Dillnock talk about that. He can t describe it far better than probably anyone else in this country can. But it is all to do with the uncertainty we face. You know, at age 65, he talked about one in 10 people at age 65 facing costs of more than 100,000. That's 
going to be considerably more. That figure came from 2010. It probably needs updating. Um, but the point is, none of us know where, where, whether we're going to be in that one in 10 or not. In other situations like this, we, do, we have insurance. Um, and actually, in some areas, like the, we have the, the public sector providing insurance where the state doesn't adequately cover that. People, several people would quite like there to be a private market for this insurance, but none has arisen. As one of my um, colleagues pointed out the other day, there is kind of nothing really stopping the private insurance um, market, uh, people entering this market. They just haven't, and they haven't in other countries. So we can't really rely on the private sector to provide this insurance. This implies a role for the state. You could have bold proposals, um, and I don't think that the um, Labour Party's National Care Service is quite as bold as it might sound, but that you could have proposals which cover all of those costs from the public sector. There would be nothing wrong with that. The main objection was it would be quite expensive, so it's probably 10 to 15 billion pounds, um, depending on how generous it is. Or you could have a, a sharing of the cost between the state and the individual. Now, how do you share those costs? Well, you could have a model like the Scottish model, where basically they pay a contribution to those, but you still have, it's a fixed contribution, um, <coughs> and it's limited, so actually if you have costs higher than that, going on for a long time, you will still face a large uncertainty. Or you could do what Andrew Dilnot proposed, which is in effect have a sort of social insurance model, you know, the state covering you after you've paid out a certain amount. That's like insurance with an excess, and it's probably quite an efficient model. However, all of these, whatever the solution is in terms of expanding, we need to have some kind of risk pool. I think there probably is broad consensus around that. People don't necessarily articulate it in that way, but I think there is consensus. And there are different ways of organising it, and there's never going to be complete agreement on the one solution. But as Norman said, you know, we have got a solution which is on the statute books. One that also has had parliamentary scrutiny. Um, local authorities got ready. They, had, they, they got ready for implementation. They've been through it. It probably has more than other and other models being kind of scrutinised um, and as far as possible unforeseen consequences have been looked at. So that is there. If, you, if there were a desire for a cross-party consensus, there could be consensus around that. And again, a beautiful segue into what Nick's, <laughs> Nick's going to say, which is, um, you know, what are the politics around this and, and how can that consensus be found? Uh, thank you. Um, so you've heard from the other speakers about the extent to which the proposals put forward in the manifestos are enough to meet the many and varied challenges that the social care system is facing. I'm going to focus on the political credibility of those proposals. So firstly, how credible are the kind of tax and spending plans, particularly the taxation plans in order to fund this? Uh, and then secondly, um, is it necessary um, to form a cross-party consensus? And if so, is it likely that one could be formed? Uh, so firstly, on the uh, tax and spending plans, are they credible? Sadly, not really. I think all of the parties are promising to deliver more than their taxation, span, uh, uh, their taxation plans could be realistically expected to deliver. Uh, so the Conservatives, uh, as we've heard, their, their plan is to stabilise um, the system, uh, but the money they're putting uh, forward isn't enough, even if councils were raising council tax by 4% a year every year. That means we're likely to have a continuation of the cycle we've had over the last few years, which is that the adult social care system continually finds itself in crisis. The government has to inject emergency money in every year in order to stabilise it. But that money eventually has to come from somewhere. And the Conservatives have really 
box themselves in in their manifesto by saying that they would not raise any additional money from income tax, national insurance or VAT, which are the three most important sources of income for the government. Uh, Labour has very, very ambitious uh, tax raising plans and you, certainly the public is increasingly uh, willing to say, well they certainly say, that they would be willing to pay more in order to have better quality public services, uh, particularly uh, for the NHS, but social care has risen up the agenda in terms of important issues for the public. And certainly if the Labour Party was returned with a healthy majority, you could say that they had a, a mandate to raise those taxes. However, a uh, Labour majority does not look particularly likely uh, at the moment, and Labour is not going to be able to raise all the money it wants just by targeting unpopular groups like corporations and the rich. Eventually, all of us are going to have to pay a bit more money if we want these services to improve. Um, as for the Dems, as we've heard, um, they have suggested a hypothecated tax effectively with a one percentage point increase to each band of income tax. And that is certainly a, a saleable uh, proposition. Uh, the, the public are very supportive of hypothecated tax. It's easy to understand. Uh, you pay this, you, you get this back. Uh, the main problem is that hypothecated taxes are really bad policy. Uh, it's either a, a hard hypothecation, uh, in which case it's very unlikely that your source of income is going to rise at the same rate as demand on the services that it is paying for, or it's a soft hypothecation, in which case it's effectively just a way of deceiving the public, and the public get very upset when you tell them that there's no such thing as a national insurance pool uh, from which all these things are funded, for example, so we'd be reluctant to add to that. So, given all those problems, uh, is a cross-party consensus a, a good idea? So this is something that's been proposed by both the Conservatives and Lib Dems, who, who want to try and find cross-party agreement through some sort of independent inquiry to put the social care system on a sustainable financial footing. And in addition to that, uh, the Lib Dems have proposed uh, establishing an independent OBR-style body uh, that every three years would assess uh, whether that amount was still enough and make recommendations to, to government on how much would need to be raised. Uh, we think this is a good idea, both of those indeed. Uh, we suggested exactly that model uh, last year. Um, some sort of uh, independent inquiry modelled on the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards to try and find some sort of cross-party agreement, if not consensus, uh, on what the mechanism would be for raising that money sustainably, and then an independent body to assess over time whether demographic changes, technological changes, other pressures meant that that was still a reasonable settlement. But is cross-party consensus likely? Um, we've already heard a, a few reasons uh, why not. Uh, Yesterday marked a thousand days uh, since the green paper was first promised. It's been stalled uh, for all that time. Uh, the rancour around Brexit clearly makes finding cross-party agreement on anything quite difficult. Uh, depending on the election <coughs> results, we might have several new party leaders uh, in the new year, which is going to have some uncertainty. And as both the 2017 election and the dementia tax and the 2010 election and the, the death tax shows, there's a strong temptation for parties to play politics uh, with this issue. Uh, but given uh, this has been a fairly downbeat session so far, I thought I'd end on some potentially positive notes. Uh, so could there be a cross-party consensus? So two reasons to think potentially so. So as already discussed, all of the parties are nominally committed to some sort of cap 
on lifetime costs. None of them have a costed plan on how to deliver that. There is some common ground and potentially some mutual self-interest in finding agreement on that. If you are going to strike agreement, the beginning of a parliament is probably the best time to do it. Theoretically, it would be five years until the next election. It might not be that long until the next election. Uh, sorry, Brenda from Bristol. Um, but certainly where the risk of an election is some way out in the future, it's easier for parties to potentially compromise. And I suppose the final point is that two of the last three elections have returned either a coalition or a minority government. And the issue of social care reform has been kicking around for decades without success. It feels, you know, none of these options are a good option for reforming it, but it feels like cross-party consensus might be the best option, even if it is difficult and even if it is a bit unlikely. Um, if government were genuinely trying to seek that, rather than just kicking the issue to the long grass, we have lots of thoughts on how to do that, but perhaps yeah, I, I shall save that for the questions. Thank you, Nick. And, I mean... You've set out why, why this is difficult now, also some reasons for optimism. I just wondered, one question from me before I open to the floor. Why is adult care so, adult social care so uniquely difficult? Why is it? I mean, you suggested, Charles, why it wasn't included initially in the sort of welfare yeah. state settlement, but why has it been so hard to, to reach a, an answer on it? I mean, I think there are two things. Why doesn't it get the kind of funding increases that the NHS gets? Um, you know, NHS funding, Broadly, over time, seems to keep up to, with demand. Social care seems not to be that case. And that was, could be the lack of kind of visibility of this. You know, you don't have waiting times measured. You don't have the, the, the kind of unmet need is quite un, un, invisible. Um, and then on the other side about why we haven't actually filled this gap in the welfare state, I think there is probably reluctance within government to extend the welfare state. It's not just like increasing spending on a bit you've already designed. It's like inventing a new bit. But on the other hand, you know, pensioners vote. So you'd think yeah. they were a constituency that, that yeah. you'd want to... So I think this, this comes back to a, kind of a core problem we have in social care, is those of us who understand social care immediately understand it's very unfair. But most of the public do not understand that social care is different to the NHS. They think that it is free at the point of use, and it's just, if I've got dementia, of course I get it free. It's no different than if I've got cancer. So you don't have much public awareness of what the current system is. What that means is if you have a public a media and a set of politicians who sort of think everything's free at the moment. So any proposal you put forward gets compared to, but I thought it was free, not the reality. So if we look at, for example, 2017 uh, and the proposals there that quickly got labelled a dementia tax, I think we need to be really, really clear. The current system is the worst type of dementia tax we could possibly have. We could barely design it to be harsher. And yet the proposal, that wasn't, it wasn't a great or a perfect proposal, but it would have made it better than it currently was, immediately got uh, marked as a dementia tax because we don't understand the current model. So I think that lack of understanding means that you actually need to do quite a lot of pitch rolling to have it be that people understand what the current system is, understand what they're comparing the kind of solutions to, to then mean you can have kind of proper debate about it. Election periods are not really the time for that kind of measured uh, debate. So in that regard, I think actually the, the fact that the Labour Party have put a firm proposal on the table, I think is really brave of them. I think that's a good sign that kind of social care is beginning to break into the kind of the consciousness of the kind of the circle of Whitehall and political watchers. Um, but it isn't necessarily translating into everybody being able to step up. I think the other thing I would just say as well 
in terms of work can be difficult. The current model is one of the most highly progressive models we have of any part of the welfare state, which inevitably means when you are then pro proposing a new model, it is helping like the third and fourth quintiles, not the first and second quintiles, because they already have all their support. So I'm looking at uh, former Treasury colleagues uh, in the room. So you can end up in a delightful argument where the reason you're tackling social care is because it's really unfair because people in the third and fourth quintile are left completely by themselves and having to look after their needs, but then getting highly criticised that the solution isn't progressive enough because you kind of forget that you're already looking after quintiles one and two. So you need to put it all together, like what does the final system look like to decide is this progressive, is it regressive, how do we fund it to make it progressive. Um, so I think that's a dilemma as well. Was there anything you wanted to add? I don't, I don't think most elected politicians, and I should emphasise I've never run for office in my life, um, actually like dealing with end of life issues. I think they simply don't like doing it. Um, and um, so you, you start from that position. There are no solutions that have ever been surfaced that don't leave some people with some pretty high costs to cope with. So you can't, you can actually produce a solution which still has a lot of people who actually don't get dealt with by the solution. And that, those two things, I mean, I used to deal with social security. The people who gained said thank you very much and said nothing. The people who lost actually made kicked up merry hell. And social care has some elements of that because you can't satisfy everybody. And the whole problem with free systems, as Gordon Brown found, there's a huge deadweight cost for all those who are currently paying for their care suddenly get it free. So there's a massive deadweight cost to the Treasury before you start to get any credit for actually what's, what you've done for the people who couldn't afford to pay for their care. So there's always been a lot of problems around this area. And as Charles said, I think there's, there's also been a reluctance increasingly, including from what you might call the, the moderate left, about a new free service under the welfare state. Why do you want to go there? Because it's likely to end in tears, as the Scots have found with all their claims about free, free services. So there's quite a lot now. What no one recognised, I think, was that you would build up such a massive deficit that doing anything now is pretty, a, a, pretty much a losing proposition because you've got to make good all, all the deficit you've accumulated now over a decade decade. So it's quite difficult to introduce a, a new scheme without tackling the deficit you've got. And that's why, why if you're a politician with a majority of 10, 20, 30, why do you want to go there? It's much easier to just sling more slugs of money as you go through each year. And on that less optimistic note, um, <laughs> Questions from the floor, which I'll take in groups of three. So there's a gentleman at the back, Hi, John Rallings, County Council's Network. Um, going to these events and getting my head into this subject, I'm actually a children's specialist by background, so I've come into this in the last year. It seems that our members are actually becoming more concerned about adult social care for working age adults because actually the government has put in some, you know, sort of limited term investment to help support us with the over 65s. What do you see are the potential 
sort of benefits and your pros and cons of trying to separate out the two systems because obviously a lot of the focus is on dealing with the over 65s we've got to get a settlement for that but you know is, is there a means by which you could see a better split between the policies lady here hello i'm uh, joan monroe i do research in uh, leadership for innovation in local government um do we not need to encourage the parties to think more fundamentally about the, the long term and how we're going to live as society? Uh, I mean, clearly there's sort of immediate things that are going on around integrating health and social care and getting much better results in places like Wigan and South Tyneside. But going beyond that, you know, how are we going to live in our local communities? Because this is only going to get worse. And I think we need to look at fundamental things like the design of housing, the design of health services and so on. Uh, rather than you know just the money which clearly is important in the short term there was one more question at the back thank you um jerry holton the um, uh, the welsh government actually has commissioned a report on on social care because it faces a demographic crisis um, the number of uh, over 70s in wales in 2040 will be over 30 percent 35 percent so they know they have to do something if the uk doesn't and they're contemplating a compulsory levy and the questions that they're tackling are should this just be a tax should it be compulsory insurance i.e. with a contributory element um, if a tax should it be hypothecated should contributions be age cohort related um, if you start paying in your 20s you pay a penny if you start paying in your 50s you pay 3p and uh, should should an effort be made to fund it so that the issue of hypothecation is less acute, softer hypothecation, because there is, in fact, a fund that you build up and you rely on investment returns to defray some of the, of the effects of the, um, of the de demographic uh, deterioration. Um, they commissioned a report, which was carefully written. I know that because I wrote it myself. And um, it's, uh, it's, on the, it's on their website under paying for social care. Sally, do you want to kick off? Because I know yeah. you can sometimes work on integrating. Um, okay, Shall I, so I'll care. kind of look at both working yeah. age adults and, and the wider integration question. So, um, working age adults, so absolutely right to, to raise the issue. So, when we're talking about the overall funding model for social care, uh, the King's Fund does mean older people and working age adults. <coughs> Too often the debate gets it focusing on older people. And I think that's predominantly because many age adults predominantly receive free care, whereas uh, a lot of older people are, are funding care themselves. But we do need a funding model that uh, can support both cohorts, because we're seeing increases in demand in both. Uh, and actually, the working age cost uh, is, is going up considerably. So about 50% of, of current public spend on adult social care is on working age adults. Um, personally, I, I don't really see much benefit in separating it from uh, because not least you then start to, we've already got a big issue with transition of children with disabilities from children's services to working age uh, adult social care and then you'd potentially have another transition. So I think it's better to be clear about what is the vision and model for social care for people age 18 and over and all the different needs they have and fund it in that way rather than playing around. Also a slight fear for me that we can entertain ourselves by playing around with structures and actually it stops us really delivering change. We just move uh, deck chairs around. Um, Joan, your point about do we need to think much longer term. Um, I agree we 
do, but there's kind of current crises in the next that we've really got to be able to tackle. But I think for me, this is where we need to think about population health and what does that mean about how public services as a whole need to work with each other and with the local community and the voluntary sector to be able to build resilience in, in our local communities, to be able to make our environment one in which we're much more likely to be able to make healthier choices. So we might live for longer in healthier life than unhealthy years. So I think there is a lot there that can help change uh, slightly change the demand curve going forward, but I think the fundamentals of the demographics are that you know we are going to need to have more social care uh, in the next 20, 30 years, and we need to find a way of sustainably and resiliently providing that and funding it. Any view on the Welsh proposals? Um, so the Welsh proposals, I haven't read those in detail yet. I mean, it, this is, I suppose, it's it's an, another example of we've had lots and lots of independent commissions and investigations and reviews, be it in England, be it across the UK, be it in Scotland or Wales. Um, it's why I'm quite sceptical about cross-party, uh, because I think we've done it before, and I will kind of uh, admit my conflict of interest. Is I thought I was the clever civil servant drafting the cross-government terms of reference of the Dilnock Commission that would tie everybody into implementing it. We'd avoid all the problems in the past. Uh, reader, I was not that clever. Um, uh, so it didn't quite go well. So we, we thought we'd looked at all of the experience, so the Turner review on pensions. We thought we understood how to make this deliverable in the long run and tie people in. And it just hasn't happened. And when you look at the history of social care, we've had every single external review we could possibly have. There aren't that many different uh, solutions. I mean, there's literally less than a handful of things. So we just need to kind of crack through to kind of go which of these two or three models do we want to go with the other reason i'm slightly skeptical about cross-party uh, consensus is right now i don't see the the context being such that they'd want to go for it but i also think social care is so toxic that if one party solves it the rest of the parties are not going to touch it again it's not like you need to kind of know this is the model that you know so if labor propose it the tories might change it again in five years time no, no other party is going to want to touch it once it is set again. So I think as long as you can get something through Parliament, so you've got enough of a cross-party consensus to get a piece of legislation through, I think you're probably then settled for the next generation. Yes, uh, so <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I agree with much of that. Uh, absolutely, I think you know the difficulty is how do you get it through Parliament? People aren't going to want to kind of fundamentally reform after that, but as with many kind of what were meant to be long-term settlements, these things can kind of die of a thousand cuts because they become underfunded over time. I also agree, like this is not a technical problem that we're having here. You know, reasonable people can disagree on exactly what the best technical solution is, but there are a broad range of acceptable technical solutions. The key challenge is how do you find sufficient political agreement on any one of those for long enough to get it through, not just onto the statute book, but then actually implemented um, as well. And so we did research last year on kind of a lot of kind of past inquiries on health, social care, on other issues as well. We kind of had kind of five key factors that we think are most likely to determine whether an independent inquiry of some sort is successful. Uh, so firstly, it needs the full and ongoing buy-in of the Prime Minister and the Chancellor and it was the loss of the Chancellor's support um, that um, killed the Dilnot implementation. Um, opposition parties need to be bought into the process. Um, you know, 
consult them on the terms of reference, consult them on the chair, consult them on the membership for the group, make them feel like they have a stake in ownership, make it difficult for them to come out and disagree uh, with the final recommendations. Uh, the inquiry needs a chair who's not just uh, bright and can get their head around the technical issues, they also need to be politically very savvy, they need to be able to sell it well and some of the chairs of past um, inquiries have done the selling less well than the development of the proposals. Um, as Sally said, it's about rolling the pitch for this. Some of the most successful inquiries, um, so Turner and the Pension Commission is, is, the, is a, the best example um, of publishing interim reports that quite clearly set out, these are the challenges we face, these are the potential solutions we could use to solve those. And that commission made it pretty clear that it was going to have to be some combination of those solutions. So by the time they made their final report, there was broad agreement on what the kind of the shape of a solution was likely to look like. Uh, and finally, um, wide scale public engagement in this. As we've heard, one of the key problems with social care is people just don't understand the system. Indeed, when they do find out about the system, they're pretty outraged about it and open minded about what the solutions might look like. So. Citizens assemblies, etc., are very good. They're good not just because it enables you to get develop better policies. Sometimes the public will consider things that politicians uh, think are red lines. It gives you a bit more flexibility about what the final solution uh, looks like. Um, and secondly, if you can show that the case for change can be won with a representative group of people, then you can potentially show that the case can be won with the with the wider public. Though clearly there are challenges of getting the wider public up to the kind of level of information that a, a small group with a couple of days discussing these issues can get to. So yeah, no guarantee of success, but we think there are ways that you could design an inquiry approach to increase your chances. Charles, did you want to come in on any of the questions from the floor? Um, only a sort of reflection on Joan's point, which is I think that Probably there is more innovation happening in some other countries. So when you look at what's happening in Japan, for example, you know they are pro there's probably more innovation going on there. I think there is something about you know it links to Norma's point about the provider sector <coughs> and just you know worried about immediate security of that. And I don't think people are freed up to think about these other things. I think they're all the time you know certainly local authorities are thinking really about managing their budgets. You know people are focused on the day to day. I kind of think. If we could solve some of these problems, that might free people up a bit more to think inevitably about the future. Um, just bringing on the next point, I, numbers three to five are kind of within the gift of people designing it. Numbers one and two are more tricky. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe more or less likely, depending on the outcome of the election. Lord Warner, did you want to respond to any Com of couple of political points. Um, I, I w was, and I think I still am, a fan of the Japanese system. However, the politics of the Japanese system quite complex, um, partly because they had consensus uh, in the population, which I'm not sure we have. Would you be able to say very quickly for those who don't know what Well, the Japanese system essentially is when you get to 40, you start paying into a, a, a national insurance system to pay for your care when you get to, I can't remember, 65 or 70. The trouble with it is you start picking on people to make pay taxes in effect at a time in their life when they may have a lot of other demands on their disposable income. That's the tricky bit. The second thing is it takes a long time to build up an, a genuine national insurance fund. It takes a really long time. 
So you've got some quite tricky presentational issues. On the issue of splitting adult social care into sections, I would say we've done quite a respectable job <coughs> at looking after people with learning disability by not splitting it out. And actually, it's the elderly people who are politically popular. Let's be, let's be brutally honest about it. Splitting it out, I don't think, is going to help people with learning disability. More questions? There's one here. Chris Smythe from The Times. The one thing that the Conservatives have said is their red line and prerequisite for any solution is that people won't have to sell their homes to pay for care for, for fairly obvious political reasons, but what does that mean in terms of boxing them in, in terms of any of the possible solutions, and, and how much would that red line distort the sort of um, distribution and progressiveness of any policy that they did come up with? And gentleman behind. Hey, Ron Morris, uh, Constitution Unit, UCL, and a former civil servant. Can I press the other members of the panel about the case for um, citizens' assemblies? Um, Nick didn't have a chance to develop uh, the idea, but they don't have to be as unambitious as he hinted might be the case a couple of weekends in a report. You know, it could be more than that. And carefully constructed and properly supported. They are capable of developing ideas, but more than that, it is a way of informing the public, perhaps, from an independent angle about a very complex issue, and <coughs> which is not subject to just the ANA or the normal activities of think tanks, may I say, or particularly political parties. So my question is, what is the view of the other members of the panel on the suggestion? And then there was one more question behind, I think. John Copps, Mutual Ventures. Um, I'm interested in the, uh, the integration with the NHS, which has been alluded to. And we all know that there's things that the NHS can do that will stop costs escalating in adult social care and there's things it does that can create costs and vice versa between the systems. I wondered if the panellists could comment on the proposals perhaps for the NHS and what they might mean for adult social care. Thank you. Lord Warren, do you want to start? So can I start with that one? Yep. The citizens Absolutely, yep. Um, I'm a fan now, more in desperation than anything else, I'm a fan of actually really opening up a debate about nursing homes becoming the responsibility of the NHS. I think we might get further politically with that as an argument than almost anything else. All the while we're trapped in this idea that we're going to try and solve this problem through council tax. We, we, can't, we can't do it. It's, it's, it's impossible. It's arithmetically impossible to do it. So why don't you take something out of the system and it's worth remembering that when the social security money went to local government in the early 1990s, Mrs. Thatcher, bless her cotton socks, actually wanted to give that money to the NHS, not to local government. So, and it was only Ken Clark who got it reversed the other way. So I think there is, it is about time we started looking at whether we didn't shift some of this problem to the NHS because it is easier politically to raise money for the NHS. Point number one, citizens' assemblies. We did this, Bob, in a kind of way. Patricia Hewitt and I did this for the 2006 white paper on your health, your care, your say, which was trying to drive a community-based care agenda. And we ended up with 1,000 people on a Saturday in Birmingham 
voting, voting on what were their top priorities. Guess what? Their top priority at that time, this is 2005, their top priority was mental health, which wasn't on any politician's agenda anywhere else. The thing about the citizens' assemblies, I think, is they may come up, if you really give them their head, they may come up with some answers that actually the politicians have never even thought of. Um, so I'll just follow up on the citizens assembly uh, point because I I think they they're a very interesting model of engaging with complex issues. Um, there's always a risk that when I'm talking about social care I can go but we we've tried that. So we have done deliberative events, citizens jury, citizens assemblies, however you might want to call them. We did them for the big care debate, so 2008 to 2009 to inform the Labour National Care Service white paper. Uh, the Dilnock Commission did public engagement. So it's not that we haven't had that be part of trying to create the confidence that the public can accept and understand the offer. But I think what's then been really hard is to translate that what is always even big citizens' assemblies is quite small footprint to giving people the confidence to be able to kind of go big with the policy option. So I think be interested in people's views about how you can shift it to the big scale. Chris, your question on the <coughs> conservative red line, um, it's uh, slightly head and hands red line, isn't it? Um, it's, it's a frustrating red line because it's a very narrow framing of what the problem in our adult social care is. So certainly when I think about my mum and dad needing care in years to come, what worries me is the quality of care they might get and the, their quality of life. I'm much less concerned about uh, do I, don't I get an inheritance from them. So I think there's a, uh, is it focusing on the right thing or not? But then the other bit that it worries me about in terms of boxing them in on a solution, and it goes back to Jerry's point about different cohorts. Um, all of this talk about should we have a social insurance model is great for a 40-year-old who can start to uh, rethink their financial planning for retirement and start to be putting money away in a mandatory way or a voluntary way. But if you're 65 or older, you've already made all of your financial plans. You can't change your financial plans. To be blunt, the only source of money for that older cohort is their housing assets. So I think it's um, unfortunate to have taken that out of the mix. I understand politically it's very, very contentious. But actually, unless you are saying working age adults should be paying for the current and next generation of older people, um, I think it's a shame not to have that as part of the revenue stream. But importantly, it not being about whether I, whether I personally have a care need means my housing assets is more about that risk pooling and thinking about housing assets in a different way. Charles? Um, on that one, I mean, I think I completely agree with Sally on this. I think that taken literally, it really boxes you in. I mean, of course, it can be interpreted in different ways, but that would probably disappoint people. So you could say, or you could have a deferred payment scheme where you kind of sell your home after you've died. That's probably not what people would want. Literally, though, you would, someone who, I mean, would encourage people to put all their assets into their houses. I think it's, it really does box you in enormously. Um, on the integration point, I mean, I think there's two areas of integration. One is about you know, do we have the right balance between system integration? Do we have the right balance between health spending and social care spending? In a fully integrated system, you would think that you would have, you know, if, more, if there was a better return on investment, I'm talking about return in terms of people's well-being and lives from putting money in social care, you'd think that that would, you know, you'd move money from the health service to social care. That's probably a good thing. It's kind of normal talking about. I think there's also the stuff around care coordination, of course, Pull, you know, this is where you get into kind of pull budgets um, that can inhibit coordination. And, of course, the Better Care Fund is trying to do 
some of that. So I think clearly integration is important. Kind of how you achieve it is probably quite tricky sometimes. And you, did you want to say anything about citizens' assemblies, or should I let? I, I think you should let Nick. I've got, <laughs> I've got, I could ad lib, but yeah, to no, be honest, I'd rather <laughs> expert. <laughs> uh, you're right; they can be quite a lot more extensive there than I suggested. And I agree with something. The, the difficult bit is how you translate the agreement of the citizen assembly into a wider agreement. I mean, I think the interesting example from the pensions commission is they effectively convinced elite stakeholders of the value of the suggestion. So uh, because of Turner's background, he was former head of the CBI, he was able to make a convincing case uh, to uh, business. Uh, also on the committee was the head of the Communications Workers Union, who then became head of the TUC. Again, that made it easier to make the case to the unions. They spent a lot of time getting the insurance industry on side. So I think the Citizens Assembly was helpful in getting those elite stakeholders who were then able to make the case to the wider public. But yeah, that's absolutely the, the harder bit to do. On the taxation question, of course, that's not the Conservatives' only red line when it comes to paying for public services, because critically, they've also ruled out uh, raising income tax, national insurance, or that. Uh, so when you rule out the kind of the key uh, taxes on income, the key tax on spending, uh, and a key potential tax on people's assets, you're, you're not left with many options. But they haven't technically ruled out a brand new tax they have that not. might be called something else, not income tax or national insurance. So <laughs> <This is true. laughs> let's keep optimistic. <laughs> Another optimistic point. Um, more questions? This one here, and then the lady there, please. Hi, it's David Brindle from The Guardian. Um, I've been writing about this for 20 years and uh, have to say my heart sinks at the prospect of another inquiry and uh, reference groups and citizens' assemblies. Um, uh, but can I press you on, on free personal care? Norman's obviously highly sceptical based on Scotland, but I wonder what the other panellists think uh, about the wisdom of committing, what is it, six, seven billion on something when the system, as Sally says, is already highly progressive. Thanks. Uh, Emily Roach from the Cabinet Office. Um, you, Sally mentioned that um, sort of transformation of the system really, doesn't really feature in the manifestos, um, and also Charles suggested that additional funding might help um, local places to sort of innovate a bit more. And I wonder what you think about the risk that actually has the opposite effect and sort of removes incentives for transformation at a local level. Um, and it, by putting extra funding into the system, we actually might be damaging transformation of the system. Is there one more question? Or should we just take those two? No? Okay. In which case? Uh, so on the, on the funding point, um, Clearly, that was one of the arguments that the coalition government made when they started kind of uh, restricting funding for many public services. That you know, if you do that, then you kind of force people on the front line to innovate, and certainly it kind of concentrates the mind if you know you're not going to have very much money in the in the coming years. But actually, our research on public services through performance tracker suggests that the main ways that public services have dealt with um, restrictions on their funding is by capping staff pay and cutting staff numbers in the case of social care, uh, squeezing the margins of providers. Um, there hasn't really been a huge amount of kind of genuine transformation as a result of that. Um, so I'm, I, I, I 
and clearly there is a risk that if you put the money back in that it takes the pressure off, but potentially it could also give people the headspace to think um, about what long-term reforms would look like. And particularly one of the big problems we've had in recent years is although more money has been put into adult social care, it's been done on an annual basis as emergency injections, and it hasn't given local authorities the ability to plan, particularly around workforce, provider, markets, etc. So I think having a long-term and certain funding settlement would go would probably be the best thing um, for helping uh, transformation. Uh, and on the, uh, the, the free personal uh, care, clearly that is a significant contributor to the uh, huge cost that people can face. It's probably not the biggest one at the higher end, which is probably the hotel costs, which is going to cost the most. So although it would be regressive, it's less regressive in that you wouldn't be paying for hotel costs for people who've got millions of pounds in assets. Clearly, though, it's only a partial solution to the problem. So yes, would it help people's lives? Yes. Yes. Is it the best way to spend that much money? I'm unsure. Charles? Um, free personal care sounds quite good. Um, until you realise there are quite a few different types of other care that people and support they might need. Um, I think the problem with it is is that, so I agree with you, Nick, I think um, it, it may not be the best way to spend the money. It's also not at all comprehensive. So, you know, in Scotland, it only covers 25% of residential care costs. Probably it doesn't help with the catastrophic costs. It makes a contribution to that, but it doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem. So I'm probably more optimistic than my panel members are on this. So uh, I think the first is let's be really clear what the Labour proposal is. So it's free personal care and a cap on catastrophic costs. So it's then recognising that free personal care is not the same thing as free social care. So if you're having free personal care, there is the risk of a smaller number of people that are now facing some catastrophic costs. So they're uh, attempting to address both. I think if you look at the Scottish experience, uh, when they, they've implemented just free personal care without a cap, what they've found is that broadly has taken this off of being a political issue. And I think there is something about the psychology of everybody feeling like they get a bit of help and therefore they're feeling less abandoned and it feels less unfair, despite the fact there will still be handfuls of people in Scotland who will have to sell their house to pay for care. So I think that's positive. Uh, we have to be really clear in explaining it to the public that it's not the same thing as free social care because uh, there is a risk that people have false expectations. And again, if we look at the Scottish example, there was definitely uh, the original assumptions about demand when it got introduced that we saw a big uh, spike in demand beyond what was originally projected. But actually, after about five or six years, that came back to what had been anticipated levels. So it, for me, it, it's a model we have seen implemented in one of the four nations. When it's been implemented, it has broadly satisfied the public. The work we've done from the King's Fund with the public, with the Health Foundation as well, says the public think that this is a welcome proposal. So I'm more optimistic that it could help. Um, if I could just pick on the point about um, is there the risk that money might stop transformation. Um, I think we have to recognise just how challenging it is in adult social care right now. So we have a sector that has had a decade of funding cuts. 
uh, we have a workforce that are paid at the minimum wage. Um, the idea that they have any headspace for any form of innovation or transformation isn't there. We've got providers who are handing back contracts because they cannot guarantee the safety of the services they're providing. So they're either closing care homes or they're handing back domiciliary care. We have pushed the system too far. It needs, as Nick was saying, some longer term certainty of funding to then allow it to have the headspace to actually think about transformation. Because there are some brilliant little islands of transformation, particularly around social enterprise and user-led uh, care provision that are great, but they are really, really small islands in, in a system which is basically lurching from crisis to crisis. So we need to give it a bit more of a stable platform to then have that innovation spread more. Final word, we'll get you, Lord Warner. I think we should stop all these cabinet ministers who say technology is going to save the world. Um, <laughs> Matt Hancock, first of all. Um, <laughs> I just want to make a point, follow up what Sally was saying. The present business model for providers is increasingly bust. Most of the elected politicians have not realised that. That actually, it's not just that they're handing back contracts. There is no opening of new nursing homes, flatlining of residential care homes, bigger homes replacing smaller homes. This set system is <coughs> quietly going down the tube, and the community side even more so. There's no more give in the system, for the most part, in many parts of the country. And it is now geographically very <coughs> skewed. It's not evenly bad over the whole country. It's really, really bad in some places and not too bad in other places. So you've got a system where it's being propped up in some places by private payers paying two, three hundred quid a week to keep non-private, publicly funded people in the home. You can't squeeze this system very much more. And that's why I started to think we've got to take something out of this system which is to take the nursing homes out because it is much easier for politicians to find money for the NHS than it is, that, rightly or wrongly, they seem to find it easier to find money for the NHS than they do for local government. So something has got to give, quite, something's got to be done quickly about the provider business model because it's bust. Well, I don't think we're sending you back from your lunch break uplifted and with having answered this, uh, uh, this question, but hopefully it's been uh, as interesting for you as it has been in the last hour. So can I ask you to thank the panel? <laughs>